0: You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. For uh, everyone joining us online, my name's Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's research institute for the arts and humanities. And I'm absolutely delighted that we're returning in person, uh, as well as online this evening, for Behind the Headlines. Our Behind the Headlines series, which is supported by the John Pollard Foundation uh, had to move online, as did everything else during the pandemic. Um, But coming back to it in person means a great deal. uh, And uh, I want to thank everyone for coming, who's joining us here in the room. Um, For those of you uh, who are attending Behind the Headlines for the first time, this is an opportunity for us to come together to think about current headline issues and to bring to them insights Uh, that very often come from our own disciplines in the arts and humanities and to to ask uh, experts in their fields to to add their voices and perspectives. Um, And this evening, in the aftermath of what seemed like a very long summer of environmental catastrophes across the world, and now as the mid-November temperatures here in Ireland threaten to reach the high teens, we're turning again to climate disaster. Uh, 2022 is the centenary year, as you know, of many things, uh, but among them, it is the centenary of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, that great long modernist poem that Eliot wrote after the devastation of the First World War and in the wake of of the, the moral as well as physical Collapse of, uh, as he saw it, uh, a former civilization. Uh, Eliot said that uh, he would show us fear in a handful of dust. Um, and what we want to do this evening is just to pick up some of his imagery a hundred years on, uh, as a springboard to thinking about wastelands, wastelands existing and in prospect in the context of the climate crisis. This evening's panel is meeting and we're coming together, first of all, against the backdrop of COP27, which as you know, is taking place in Egypt uh, without, I think, the kind of confidence that we would like to see in world leaders and uh, their commitments. Uh, But it's also taking place amid calls for disciplines across the arts and humanities to engage yet further in responding to environmental disaster and to climate change. This is a crisis that puts urgent demands not just on science, politics, but on the creative imagination uh, uh, and and on language itself. Are the very terms that we use, horror, disaster, apocalypse, mobilizing us to action, or are they, in fact, in danger of, of distancing us further from the conditions that we're actually trying? To confront. These are some of the questions that we're going to be following tonight and uh, I won't spend any more time talking. Let me turn to our panel and introduce them to you. As you know if you followed behind the headlines before they have a a punitive 10 minutes to speak before we open to questions Uh, and we're joined this evening. I'm pleased to say and I'm going to introduce them to you in the order that they'll be speaking. First of all by Nasser Hardeman who's here Uh, Nasa is an award-winning Irish filmmaker. She has a PhD from Trinity in film theory, uh, and she has degrees from NCAD, the National College of Art and Design, and from Berlin's Universitat der Kunst. She's written and directed original theatre, creative documentaries, and many uh, globally screened dramas and films. And she's been awarded both at the IFTAs, the Irish Film and Television Awards, and at BAFTA. Uh, Her award-winning feature film, which I know some of you will have seen, is Sea Fever. Uh, And she's going to be talking about this film this evening. Sea Fever debuted on the opening night of the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival. uh, And after that, it was distributed worldwide. I have seen it. uh, And I don't want to say any more about it because Nasa will talk to you a little bit about it and why it's placed here tonight in the context of our discussions. But I know uh, from having seen it, it it, it raises questions that are right to the fore of what we want to think about this evening. Our second uh, speaker is Connor Brennan. uh, And Connor is a PhD candidate uh, finishing his PhD in Trinity's Department of German. His research compares aesthetic responses to climate crisis across a range of contemporary fiction. But he also looks back to the influence of modernist authors such as Franz Kafka and their influence on the contemporary landscape. Uh, He has a BA in German and English from Trinity, a master's in German from the University of Oxford, and he was an Ertegun scholar, in fact, at Oxford. And having heard Connor speak on this subject and on his research previously, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing his contribution this evening. Uh, my colleague Katrina Russell, uh, at the end of the panel, lectures in the School of Religion, Theology and Peace Studies uh, in Trinity, and her work focuses on environmental theology and philosophy, cosmology and creation, technology, agriculture and research ethics, and theories of justice in sustainable development. Uh, she's been many things in uh, the years that she spent before coming to Trinity, including uh, studying Agricultural Science at UCD. And she has also worked in ecosystem monitoring and in commercial horticulture, uh, uh, working as a nursery plants person and gardener, experience which of course also uh, I think is relevant um, in many ways to some of our considerations today. And our final speaker on the panel is Yaren Jerez-Colombie, Colombier is an Assistant Professor in Latin American Studies and intercultural communication in Trinity. Yaron grew up in Havana, in Cuba, and has taught in universities in Spain and in Ireland. Uh, she's also a published writer. She writes in Cuban Spanish, in English, and Catalan. And I want to congratulate her because her first poetry collection, uh, which translates as Fossilized Rain, and I hope she'll hold it up for us, has um, just been published, it was published this year. Um, partly through a Trinity College Dublin Association and Trust grant. A very beautiful um, piece of work, uh, but Yaron is also the, uh, the author of a volume of essays on Transculturation and Catalan-Cuban Intellectual History, which was published last year, and co-editor of an open access edited volume, Creating Resilient Futures, Integrating Disaster Risk Reduction, Sustainable Development Goals, and Climate Change Adaptation Agendas. And that was just published uh, this year, Yaron, by Colgrave. And I I know we'll be able to get a link, I think, for you uh, for that if you're interested. Yaron also brings a particular experience to Trinity. Before coming to uh, the college, she worked in interdisciplinary research at the SFI Science Foundation Ireland Centre for Energy, Climate and Marine Research and Innovation. So, another perspective uh, that's highly relevant to some of the things we're going to be talking about this evening around the subject of wastelands. So that's our panel. They will speak for 10 minutes, uh, and uh, then we'll move to some discussions, some comments from you, some Q&A. Um, so with that, I'm going to hand over first to, to you, NASA, and I know you have some visuals for us. You're the scientist, I hear.
1: I am a Jared, the skipper, this is Freya, the real boss.
0: (sighs) What is your work while you're on board? I identify and extrapolate patterns from variations in deep sea behaviour. I need to photograph
2: your catch. (laughs) Uh, Yes! We're on a roll! Something's
1: wrong. What is this? How long to lead you through the boat?
0: into the water, we're all vulnerable to get infected.
1: I can't see.
2: I want you to test all of us. Those things will spread really fast. We need to quarantine ourselves.
3: We're making port tonight.
2: But you don't understand. Then you're not me! we that's the end of my talk. I hope you enjoyed that. You know, it's, um, basically, I'm going to just talk to you very briefly about the film and why uh, I, I was trying to make a film, that, um what my intentions were in making it. I'm going to give you a very brief outline of the story. I'm going to talk really uh, more about the themes that are in the film and the uh, characterisation as, uh, as an embodiment of those themes. So uh, the overall intention, this is the sound mix, when we were putting the sound mix together, we did this infra sound, which you can only hear in the cinema, with these huge big speakers that give you, you know that like a sonic boom, if you've ever uh, heard uh, Thunder Mind, you, you feel it down here, it gives you a sense of scale. So when are trying to deliver that. Um, what I wanted to do really was make a film of ideas uh, that would use the language of cinema, which is essentially, as we know, the language of dreams, right, to articulate in a meaningful way, some of the thinking that relates to our ecological crisis, by means of finding a kind of cinematic correlative for that. So I didn't want to make a disaster movie because that's what you talk about results when you're doing a disaster movie. I wanted to dramatise the kind of the central modes of imagining and thinking that have led us to this kind of ecological crisis, and um, and I wanted to do that in a way that what I was trying to do was to try to get under people's skin. Just to reach beyond preconceptions and, and political positions and ideologies, and try to create something that has that kind of a potent reflectivity that that's about ways of thinking, but using a kind of haptic sensory language, and um, that that goes with a dream reality. So that's sort of the intention, and um, so drawing on a kind of um, German expressionism because. Uh, like yourself, have a a great immersion in in, uh, German visual culture. And I was very interested in that kind of German expressionist way of trying to articulate the unease and uh, disturbance in the air that was uh, happening coming up to the Second World War, and uh, to try to use that same kind of unease using the same kind of dream imagery, not the same imagery, but the same approach to dream imagery, the same kind of approach to sort of an unearic sense of unease that that you find in those early German films. To make something that that would feel intimate, that would feel personal, and that would have an uncanny sense to it that didn't get manufactured. Um, like a sudden, unexpected noise. <laughs> um, so really that was that was the intention, and the intention with this thing, this is the animal that's in the film. So I'll just spoil the story for you because it doesn't turn up into a act But um, it, the intention really was to create something where I was trying to evoke in the audience a kind of a sense of wonder, that the thing itself, it, it, it sort of pulses with this blue-green light. It's quite lovely to look at. It's, it's um, got this quality of wonder to it, but also the scale of it. There's something kind of dreadful about the scale. Um, and, and the intention there was to evoke the same kinds of feelings that you get when you're faced with the natural world. So the central ambition really was to try to, to uh, dramatize and concretize um, this sort of feeling of dread and wonder around the natural world and then to dramatize a conflict between the ecological and the economic interests um, that have caused us to land in this crisis, and how easily that we all fall into a kind of anthropocentrism um, and then to discuss you know the problems with how uh, our approach to ecology is is uh, Damaged by our prioritising of uh, the economic. So, I wanted to disestablish in that context the kinds of cultural representations that are often encoded in Hollywood cinema um, because they tend to kind of reinforce and, and, and reproduce certain kinds of thinking and certain kinds of imagining. But at the same time, as wanting to disestablish those forms of thinking, I wanted to engage people in the way that the pleasures of Hollywood cinema kind of engage people. Um, so I felt that it was important to have that kind of incredibly repulsive narrative construction and really dynamic character transformation, um, and also to make something that didn't feel tendentious or propagandist. I think the risk for me in, in terms of making film like this was that you can end up preaching to the choir. You, know, you can end up screening at a lot of film festivals and screening at a lot of climate crisis conferences, and then um, I really didn't want to do that. I wanted, I wanted this film to screen at multiplexes. What's the point of making a film where you're raising these issues and trying to think about different ways of imagining the world? Unless you can screen at multiplexes, unless you can sneak into people's unprepared consciousness, unless you can meet, unless you can bypass political resistances or semantic polarities that people are familiar with and feel that they already have taken a position on, um, and meet mainstream audiences really where they are. Um, while at the same time not uh, not compromising those uh, and, and collapsing into those semantic polarities. So narratively then, what I wanted was this repulsive narrative drive. So um, I knew I needed a, a, a grounded, this is sounding again, really realist world. So I structured the film as a really contained narrative, and it takes place in this completely closed world of this trawler, which is a real trawler that, that fishes out of and in the story, it's marooned five five days' journey out into the Atlantic. Um, and the nice thing that that gives us is two kinds of wasteland in a certain way, because when you're out in the Atlantic and it's very calm, there's a quality of the desert to it. You know, there's there's nothing. You can't drink the water, there's nothing visible on the surface. Um, and it gives you a kind of agoraphobia, or it gives me a kind of agoraphobia. Um, But at the same time, there's a claustrophobia attached to being in this. you can see the size of the boat there, it's it's about 80 foot long. And it's made of, of wood and steel. And that's it. That's your whole world. You're not going anywhere else until that gets back to land. So there's something nice and contained about that. And the trawler in the story, it encounters the aftermath of bottom trawling. And bottom trawling is the kind of it's an act of greed, and it's also an act of desperation. It's a technique that, if I'm sure a lot of you know this already, um, it basically drags a very um, narrow mesh net across the sea floor. So it kills absolutely everything on the sea floor. It's incredibly destructive. And it's illegal, but people still do it. And they, they do it right down to the Hadle zone, you know, which is really deep water. We don't know what's down there like we're destroying things that we haven't even had an opportunity to understand or study. There are innumerable life forms that get pulled up through this process that because they live at such uh, intense pressures, when you pull them up to the surface, you don't even know who they are because their bodies just disintegrate at, at surface pressure. Um, so it makes the tragedy of the of the destruction even more profound that we're destroying worlds that we have, we have no idea who they are. So I constructed um, uh, in this bottom drawing as uh, something uh, as an act whereby something is disturbed, which is not beyond the beyond. So the idea was something whose scale and body design would be consonant with w- what we know to be true. Um, in other words, that if you live at that level, if you're if you're uh, an animal that lives at that level, that your body can actually grow to probably be scale because you don't have to have very heavy muscles and bones to survive. You can float. Um, and those animals are not tetrapoddled the way we are. They're not built on a kind of um, uh, two two ones, two legs or four legs or whatever. Um, and so it's very difficult to anthropomorphize those animals in the way that we might anthropomorphize other mammals or, or even other animals that are uh, vertebrates in the way that we are. And um, So the animal, what I wanted to do was to kind of challenge any kind of anthropocentric perspective. You know, it's in its own habitat. The film's figures are, are the intruders into this habitat, um, and it's you know, unengageable, un, if you like, with us, um, and it has no kind of interest in us, uh, so its danger to us is incidental rather than uh, malevolent. Um, and it was also important to me that it would be really beautiful and have that quality of when you see something extraordinary in the natural world. There's something that happens within you, something that's about awe and wonder and dread, all at the same time. You're confronted with your own insignificance, as it were, at the same time as feeling this wonder and beauty. So I tell the story from the perspective of this figure here, who's played by Hermione Corfield. And um, she's a young scientist on the trawler, and she's kind of a Cassandra figure, uh, which you have to have when you're telling a story about climate crisis, right? (laughs) So she's struggling to communicate what it is that she observes and deduces from the disturbance of this animal before the other crew members really understand that this is not an economic opportunity, that this is a different kind of crisis. Um, And then in keeping with popular and media relations to contemporary climate scientists, the crew who are the world of this story ask her to be a lot more charming in terms of her warnings. Ask her then, when they start to develop a little bit more of an imagining and understanding of what's going on to be, omniscient in terms of what's going to happen next, and if she gets it slightly wrong, then it's proof that she was wrong all along, um, and ask her then, as things get even worse, to provide magical solutions in the way that science is asked to provide ma- magical solutions. And it gives me an opportunity to um, to articulate the kind of themes that I want to unfold in the story that that are interwoven in the kind of crisis that we've allowed ourselves to, to get into. The first is, of course, that we have this advantage of having the world in microcosm in this small community. So. It's peopled in the story by an equal number of men and women, which is completely untrue, actually. The uh, the world of trawler fishing it's incredibly patriarchal. <laughs> there are really, really, really few women on the, on the boats. In fact, uh, the research that I did for this film, I did with the one female skipper in Ireland who is now retired. So I know there are no female skippers in Ireland. But what is true is that um, the boats are home. These This scale of boat, this kind of 80 footer, 60 footer, they're homes to indigenous people whose traditions are eroding. In the face of big industrial boats that just hoover up everything and destroy ecosystems, and also they're being destroyed, or their traditional modes of fishing are being destroyed by increasing pollution that um, destroys any kind of shallow or sea fishing. That those fishing boats are all really depleted because uh, the shallow waters of our shores are so poorly uh, managed. And it's also true that those boats are coming to migrant people. You are Fleeing the result of war and/or colonial exploitation, and you get a lot of um, of migrant people working on those boats as well. So, one of the big themes of the story, obviously, is economic versus ecological crisis, or economic versus ecological precarity, um, that can be articulated and is articulated in the story by means of this idea of the conflict between individual need, which is desperate among these people, and global need. So you can equate that to all kinds of indigenous peoples across the world, and how individual economic need butts up against um, the, the growing ecological crisis, and how those things are put in conflict with one another in a kind of artificial polarity. And um, so the story reprocesses really questions about the ethics of um, you know, protecting me and mine versus protecting the broader community and the broader environment, um, and dramatizes how we misrecognize ourselves so often as somehow existing outside of our community or our systems of life. When in fact, of course, we are a dynamic integrated part of it, and we are part of transforming that through our dynamic movement all the time. COVID taught us that, if nothing else. Um, But of course, the small fishing communities, they don't have to imagine the climate catastrophe. They're living it. And they have this traditional deep understanding of small-scale sea fishing, which is in the main sustainable um, but it's the industrial scale of overfusion that's destroying their livelihood and making them desperate, and making them take bigger risks and plunder ever deeper waters. And in fact, it's incredibly dangerous for those communities. There was um, a researcher in Oxford uh, who published in the BMJ who did a 20-year longitudinal study and worked out that more people died working on trawlers than in any other uh, profession in the UK in and that's, um, that's a new thing. Are we out of time? Really. Yeah. <laughs> OK, I'll hurry up. Um, so the biggest themes really it's uh, it's the conflict of, of reason and magical thinking. You know, it's looking at myth and faith and parable as something that can be powerful and nourishing and unifying, but it can also and, and can work in tandem with you know engaging in a, in a sustainable way with the ecosystem, but it can also be a form of self soothing that prevents us from taking action. Um, and I wanted to really address head on this kind of undercurrent in Western thinking. That articulates a rejection of scientific expertise as if scientific es- expertise is somehow devoid of emotion or unsympathetic, and you see it across Western cultural um, product from things like Frankenstein, uh, uh, Metropolis onward. This notion of cold scientists, and mad scientists, cruel scientists, who's outside of um, of normal human empathy. Um, and so my my central figure is this woman. I thought, okay, well, how do I address that? How do I um, uh, uh, contest that idea. So uh, I gave her an intellectual difference. Um, she's uh, she's um, on the autism spectrum. So she struggles to communicate, struggles to make empathic relationships with other people. And in some ways, that fits with this cultural stereotype of the code scientists. But in other ways, she's actually uh, more empathetic in terms of her approach to, uh, to what's really at stake. Um, but what I wanted to do as well was to say that that's not everybody. So uh, this man, man main, this is a behind the scenes shot, plays a second scientist who's also on the boat. So she's a marine biologist, and he is an engineer. And he presents a kind of um, corollary where he's warm and emotionally connected, and also a talented scientist. Um, but he's uh, explicitly in the story he's articulated as a Syrian refugee, because it's important to identify those unsp- unspoken colonial um, resonances that that form a backdrop to the story and a backdrop to the circumstances that inform the story. And then the other characters who kind of um, embody the themes are the married couple who own the boat, who uh, engage in the pleasures of magical thinking as a form of community building and, and a poetic imagination. Um, and you know they, they form an argument in the story that magical and religious imagination can be a structuring force in terms of community building and in terms of... Creating sustainable work practices, but you know, in the contemporary world, the pain of economic pragmatism runs against those uh, traditional sustainable behaviours. So finally, then we constructed, or I constructed, this imaginary animal. The idea was to reflect and embody uh, the unknown and the unexpected consequences of ecological breakdown. So it's circular and it's radial and it's non mammalian, and it has the colours of the globe in it when it's when it's pulsing, and it's mute. And it's powerful but it's really vulnerable. And so it becomes this unknowable expression in life and uh, of life and like the biosphere it's easily disturbed and it's delicate but ultimately it's completely disinterested when it comes to the survival of any particular hominin species so that it's a perfect perfectly able to adapt in a way that would condemn all of us to the fossil record. And so in terms of dreams importance that becomes the warning again that's at the center of sea history.
1: Uh, thanks so much for that talk. and also uh, the Language of Dreams stuff, and the kind of German expressions, and it does chime in so much of what I've looked at myself. Uh, thanks so much to Eve and to the Hope for um, inviting me to talk today, it's a real honour to be included in this panel. Um, in terms of the topic, I'm also going to stay on the more kind of allegorical and abstract side of things. But I know, then, that uh, Katrina and Jaren are going to talk maybe a bit more specifically about particular landscapes and contexts. So hopefully, we do have a good uh, variety of approaches covered. And forgive me if I mostly read these remarks as well. and kind of uh, not to be trusted to get to the point within 10 minutes otherwise. <laughs> um, I'm actually very happy that this is taking place in the context of the wasteland centenary. As he mentioned, I'm just coming to the end of a PhD on the climate crisis in contemporary fiction. And one of the questions that's preoccupied me a lot in that research is to what extent any of the aesthetic techniques or forms I came across were really new. You know, Public coverage of the climate crisis often emphasizes its radical newness. We've all become really accustomed to hearing things described as unprecedented or seeing temperature records broken every single year. Even this idea of the Anthropocene is really just an attempt to drive home to us just how recent and how fundamental a shift human-caused climate change is. And it is important to be reminded of those facts because, by rights, they should come as an absolute shock. But in much the same way that we as a society keep hearing this news and keep failing to be shocked into action, the contemporary fiction that I read about climate change seemed to be lacking that kind of shock of the new that's often ascribed to modernism in the 20th century and to poems like The Wasteland. So I thought I'd maybe use my 10 minutes to talk about some things that I think haven't changed so much in the of this kind since Eliot's time and other things that maybe have. I actually watched a CD request this week. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I really recommend it. And I was especially delighted to see the actor Owen Foray in there, because one of the pieces that came to mind first for me in this context was Marina Carr's play, *I Girl, which some of you might have had a chance to see when it premiered in the Abbey last year. I actually have to thank my colleague in the hub, Samin Chouboa, for uh, recommending that I go see it. Um, I don't regret it. Um, It's in quite a different genre than Elliot's poem, but in terms of the text, there are a lot of immediate similarities. Eliot's working title for the poem was He Do the Police in Different Voices. And the uncertainty of who's speaking at any given time in the poem is one of its most crucial modernist features. In Eye Girl, Foray also speaks in many different voices. Her character is listed only as Girl in the script, who appears to be this kind of future androgynous post-human figure after the extinction of Homo sapiens. So picking up nicely from the end of your talk, Anasa. She sometimes speaks as Girl but also as historical and classical figures like Joan of Arc, Oedipus, Antigone, and sometimes even the voice of other extinct species like the Neanderthals. Like the Wasteland, Girl* seems to be set in this kind of desolate, barren space, almost outside of history. It also has this kind of heap of dust or sand on other its a mostly empty stage. And it's obsessed with death and destruction. One of the voices sounds like it might be that of the playwright herself who's mourning the death of her father. One possible way of understanding Elia's poem is to read it as the visions of the classical seer Tiresias, who announces himself in the third section, quote, I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dogs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. And girl also seems to be a kind of prophet having visions, speaking in the voice of old myths in an attempt to make sense of new extinctions. A lot of the scenes start with, I, girl, I, Oedipus, I Neanderthal, and so on. Now, that all sounds very grandiose, and that definitely is one part of the puzzle. One aspect of the way some of that I think, is as applicable today as ever before is the sense of perplexity, the sense that all this knowledge and baggage and complexity make it impossible to tell a clear or coherent story, and I think that's probably something you had to grapple with when making this movie. And I think the way Eliot's poem incorporates all this past literature and kind of implicates it in the shocks of the 20th century is significant, because the most important voices talking about the climate right now are the ones reminding us that the Anthropocene is actually nothing new at all. Writers and scholars like Dupesh Chakrabarty, Amitav Ghosh, and Robin Wall remind us that while the effects we're seeing may seem new, the causes and the paradigms underlying them go back to the very beginning of modernity and are completely inseparable from colonial history and the economic models of capitalism. That's a really important connection to me, and I think it'll be made a few times across the course of this panel. So while Eliot kind of fires the whole Western canon at us, it's important to bear in mind that um, the kind of way to get into that canon is a big part of the problem. But to be fair to Eliot, he's not just trying to throw our noses in his classical education. (laughs) For instance, another feature that I think makes the wasteland so compelling still are the hints of humor to be found throughout the text in these various different voices. Now, like, it's not a laugh minute, as anyone who's read it probably know. <laughs> But the poem often does tread this fine line between humor and despair, such as in the conversation between uh, two women in a pub, interspersed with this kind of uh, scary, apocalyptic announcement of closing time, hurry up please, it's time, which you might actually have seen in big, scary letters on the hub window on your way in. I think it's one of the best things, as being in that window. And it also makes for a really terrifying start to the day if your thesis is choosing. <laughs> a lot of scholars have pointed out the importance of humour in writing about ecological themes, which might sound kind of counterintuitive in this context. Compared to these kind of prophet figures that we see with Eliot, theorists like Nicole Seymour have pointed out that a big part of the problem is this very perception of preachiness on the part of environmentalists, especially white-western environmentalists or those of us in the sheltered Global North which I think you also touched upon with this idea of preaching to the choir. Seymour's argument is that while the issue at hand is deadly serious, the preachy tone is just associated with a lack of self-awareness. And it kind of turns people off this topic altogether. And she champions irony, satire, and play as ways to combat this. And while I think that maybe a version of that humor is there in the wasteland, the form that it would take today has probably changed a lot. And that change partly has to do with identity as well. Including the identity of the writers themselves. It's not a coincidence, I think, that Igor wasn't written by a male playwright. Where Eliot gives us Tiresias as, quote, an old man with wrinkled female breasts, Foray is also deliberately costumed to look androgynous in Igor, wearing she wears this kind of armored chest plate that leaves only her breasts exposed. And Cara riffs on this in the opening lines, poking fun at his comfort, a certain portion of the Abbey audience might feel with this where one of the voices in Eliot's poem laments, quote, I can connect nothing with nothing, foray intones at the very beginning of the play. Breasts are like string theory, connected to everything, so obvious we have to deny them. Misogyny, too. Poor men. Ah, poor men. God love them. (laughs) This type of humour, which could definitely be read as kind of female artists writing back to the fairly male brand of misanthropy found in the wasteland, is very prevalent in the fiction that I've looked at. And interestingly, it's often channeled through older female narrators, such as Janina Dusheko in Olga Tukarchuk's ecological thriller, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, which is also a great example of this question of how to kind of um, make these topics palatable and to kind of um, bypass the, you know, the sort of defense mechanisms that audience, uh, audiences might have. And in trying to think about this type of narrator, I did come across one idea that I think is quite different from what's going on with Elliot. The idea comes from an essay by Ursula K. Le Guin that I really highly recommend. It's great. It's a short essay. It's called The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. And Le Guin argues that our origin stories about the place of humans in the world have been wrong from the start. She presents the case that the first technology we came up with as a species probably wasn't a weapon, but a bag or a container. And for Le Guin, this idea that the first image of our humanity wouldn't be hunting gathering, allows her to feel fully human and to recognize the power of her type of fiction, as opposed to this whole masculine tradition shaped around the hero, which she sees as essentially destructive. There's a lot of humor in her approach as well. She says, for instance, that, quote, it's clear that the hero does not look well in this bag. You put him in a bag, and he looks like a rabbit, like a potato. (laughs) But it strikes me that when Elliot's poem is so focused on destruction and fragmentation, this whole heap of broken images, but stories about trying to put things back together again, about trying to gather them up and take care of them in sort of unfussy, everyday ways, that those maybe do have a power to give us hope and to promote at least some, maybe quite ordinary, kinds of action instead of despair in a way that I think uh, wasn't foreseen in Elliot's time. Okay, I can hear that us now. I'll please, it's time, so I'll stop there. <laughs>
3: I said thank you <laughs> for the invite, and uh, I, I did want to say that the the, the timing is good for the wasteland 2022 and the 100th and anniversary, but also for for COP 27. Um, and it's interesting, I think, that the, the main theme coming out of discussions, at least the headline theme at the moment, is climate compensation. So compensation for loss and damage, and um, which is really new, at least it, it's new. It's a new emphasis. In the past, the emphasis was on you know, common with differentiated responsibilities. For example, every country had a responsibility. The rich countries had a, a greater one. Um, but the emphasis still was on the responsibilities the developing countries had. Whereas now, I think the, 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 the highlighting compensation and loss and damage is important. I want to frame my response to the theme Um, in in two ways. First, I want to say something about interpretations of wasteland, and we've heard some really interesting ones already. I'm not sure I can can better those. They were really really uh, good uh, in environmental ethics. So the way in which interpretation acts to make us understand the environment and and how to act in relation to it um, as well. And then secondly, to say something about narrative and literary approaches to climate change. In contrast, and that contrast has already been made by some people. Tonight, to conceptual or natural science approaches um, for both helping us to imagine outcomes and engendering responses um, but also in in the gaps that it leaves in in that way as well. So the first thing I want to say about wasteland is that um, for Eliot of course the term is used to describe land laid waste by human intervention, uh, by human activity, interference, carelessness, acquisitiveness, all of those things and he is talking about the brutal death of a generation, his, his own, um, and, and later the, the next. Um, uh, but he's also talking about sort of, and, and referring to some of the many disruptive, positive, what we call evidence-based initiatives that were going on in the world in, at the time, especially in Britain, in horticulture and in agriculture, that were, we would now call probably you know, nature-based farming or sustainable development, so initiatives in food production, but also in city building, like the Garden City approach to, to planning. Um, and of course, World War II was to disrupt that, disrupt that trajectory even more. And although I, I take your point that there's nothing new in, in the occurrence of wastelands, the, the truth is that we're currently on, involved in a great acceleration of those processes which are you know, exceeding planetary boundaries. And that's a, that's a difference, I think, in, the, we're in the middle of a, you know, a, a, a sixth mass extinction that is human-generated and is unprecedented in that way in the Earth's history. So <clears throat> uh, this is especially so I think in the last 50 to 70 years, and that's what the, we, we call this period of the great acceleration and, and now this new term, the Anthropocene, which you, you mentioned, where the Anthropocene meaning the world made over anew by humanity. So we used to be at the mercy of natural forces. now we are changing the world in ways that um, uh, are changing our life support system. Um, the second though, and also mentioned in different ways by both speakers already, is a more insidious meaning of wasteland. It's the narrow technocratic one that sees wastelands everywhere where a landscape has no obvious human use function. So colonists and productionists interpreted for example dry savanna and flooded marshes as land to either be forested, re in some way or drained for cultivation or for extraction. So the idea, for example, that arid lands are ruined, human-induced wastelands, led, in some cases, to dubious policies that damaged the ecosystems further, many of which were inhabited sustainably by indigenous peoples who lived there for thousands of years and not millennia. The assumption that land needs to be cultivated or indeed rewilded, also, depends much on how it's interpreted. And that needs more scrutiny. The rather awkwardly expressed SDG, you're familiar with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, of land degradation neutrality, is intended to be a little bit better at describing uh, ecosystems in non-loaded ways. Um, It is, in some ways, a more responsive term and principle, Uh, not unlike uh, in in, uh, the first principle of medical ethics, um, which is do no harm. First, do you no know, harm. So it has a sort of, sort of ecological version of that. So the objective is to support ecosystem functions and services and food security and protect natural capital from further degradation. Um, it doesn't presuppose a specific ecosystem characteristic or future either, but pays attention to them. So the Irish theologian and, and geologist John Feehan often says to his students, you know, we need to become... And slightly less inadequate in the way that we pay attention to to the natural world. Um, and one example of this approach to uh, uh, land degradation neutrality, again an awkward term, and um, stalling certification, is that widely praised one of the Great Green Wall. Some of you may be familiar with the idea. It's an 8,000 kilometre long planting project in the Sahil region south of the Sahara which is about 13% Midway, um, and it, the idea behind it is to secure the soil, secure the ecosystem, and to secure livelihoods for millions. H- however, it also brings up new problems, <laughs> um, and there's a degree of increase, increased fencing going on uh, across the world, and this is not new either. Um, there, fencing, of course, the enclosures happened in Europe in the in eighteenth the and nineteenth century, and later in the Americas. And what it is is, is, a, is a continued privatization of the commons it's creating new social and cultural tensions that can't easily be sidelined and direct and indirect enclosure benefits mostly elites and really it's not shown the the extent to which vulnerabilities are reduced by by uh, you know approaching it this way so it can be misleading um uh, as, as a success story um subverting sort of the Original objectives. The fencing can sort of subvert the original objectives. Um, <clears throat> so, in many ways, conservation and regeneration projects are more and more evaluated in terms of ecosystem services. Very useful. It's an extension on on, on sort of bare utilitarianism or or dominion or high nature value farming, um, as well as considerations about habitat too for all species who also have a claim to belong in the ecosystem. But at the same time, the social ethics aspects are key. Um, and capability building for sustainability has to be polycentric um, and, and, and multiple focus. So the, the land degradation neutrality approaches is, is better, I think, at describing what, what's possible. Um, but it also has its blind spots and needs to be part of capability building in, in development projects um, and not opposed from the outside, for example. The second point I want to say something about is um, imagining climate catastrophe in literature and narratives of poems. Um, and of course narratives of climate catastrophe are not new, nothing's new. In the <laughs> um, and they're also often morality tales of course about blame and lament about victims and perpetrators. They offer us visions of catastrophe but also sometimes also more positive views, so utopian uh, uh, futures and possibilities. So, the Book of Revelation, for example, people often mention the end times as the apocalypse in that negative sense. It's a prophetic biblical book of visions of the future. It does provide us with frightening images, but at the same time, the shining cosmopolis at the end times. So, the the the, the uh, and in in the meantime, of course, the idea is that we act towards that. That the the eschaton is not about the future; it's more about the present. What people sometimes call apocalyptic as the eschatology. It tells us what we should do now. These are All of these narratives, not just the biblical ones, are extra historical experiments in future, uh, futures, possible futures, whether they're catastrophic or utopian or dreamlike or uneasy or uncanny. I think there's some lovely words to, to bring in. And they can often be considered more truthful than conceptual and scientific naturalisms because they engage our imagination, exactly because they engage our imagination. They allow us, for example, to see um, our kinship with nature and with others, and to also, in a moral sense, change our ways before it's too late. In the movie The Day After Tomorrow, which is considered a fictional account of Al Gore's an inconvenient truth, we see a replay of the flood narrative and the end of the world, or the end of a world. Of course, the world will go on without it. So that's the, the interesting thing, I think, This is not unlike the flood narratives in Genesis, although this time it's nature, and not God, who exacts a price for our transgressions. And and in many ways, of course, flooding remains the challenge of many societies across the globe. But in the end, that story is one of heroes. And we've heard something about heroes already. Um, It's only the rugged scientists alert to the dangers that survive. And ironically, it's the populations of the northern hemisphere that show hospitality to those um, of the southern hemisphere who show hospitalities to those from the north a verse of our usual tropes about migration. In some ways, this is a neat resolution, um, and, but this n- neat resolution is too catastrophic, too heroic, and too convenient in, in many in ways. ways. Everything is realigned in one fateful move. This can paralyze action, pro-environmental action, because the action that is needed to avert climate catastrophe is action of a different kind. The everyday working of painstaking international cooperation to secure LLDNs, food security, manage resources across borders, and to face climate uh, uh, change. Immersive experiences in art and in nature can transform our attitudes and thereby our behavior, but we're always faced with this value action gap, the gap between what we know is the right thing to do and our many competing desires for happiness, for for life, for, for uh, uh, excitement. So, we understand, for example, the contribution that aviation makes to climate change. We understand that less than 20%, or actually probably much less than 20% of the world's population has ever flown or maybe will fly. But we still want our holiday in Italy and a shopping trip to New York. This year at COP27, Climate Trace, which as it happens is an Al Gore Foundation launched a list of the biggest single emitters of anthropogenic greenhouse gases based on satellite images on well, sensing AI and collected data. Very interesting to look at what's listed. For Ireland, Dublin Airport is the biggest single point emitter, followed by cement manufacturers, two of them are named, car gas fields, and Dublin traffic. So the suggestion made is that, in, and has been made by, Um, Michael Martin is that our behaviour change has to involve some kind of voluntary austerity. So it's either either carrot or or stick or maybe both at the same time. Imagining catastrophe can be paralysing and and not pro-environmental. Imagining voluntary austerity is a little bit like Gareth Hardin's mutual coercion, mutually agreed upon, can also be paralysing. But it is also possible to build on sustainable models that have been tested. There are good models out there um, that have been mainstreamed or could be mainstreamed at different scales. And scale is important, and I think that's why, yes, it's new, but but the scale matters. Um, that are also desirable, like cycling culture, nature-based farming approaches, circular economies for sustainable development, and justice, of course, for developing countries. And so sometimes it's the small things that, that make a difference, and I think that echoes what you were saying already t- today and I just want to point out this which shocked me a little because these are the small things that matter and um, and if we if we go on you know with our good intentions but act against them then it, it, it's, it's it, there's a sort of, this is a perfect example of the of the value action gap we, we value something but, but we fail to act in, in relation to it um, either because we're myopic a little or, or because our, our desires for water, <laughs> and providing for our guests, which is a wonderful thing to do, of course, hospitality, and um, uh, has has over that. So I think I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>